You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. This episode brings us to Penn State University, where a young woman's brutal and bizarre murder would shake this college community. In March 1987, Dana Bailey was a senior at Penn State University. She lived with her roommate in an apartment right across from the campus main gates at 132.5 South Allen Street. On March 5th, Dana's parents headed to State College to visit their daughter. They planned to say hello and drop off her rent check for the next month's rent. They climbed to the second floor and her mother, Shirley, opened the unlocked door, peered in and called her daughter's name, Dana. But nothing, no response. And that was odd. Shirley walked back through the apartment toward the bedroom, wondering where Dana was. It wasn't long before she found her daughter. Unfortunately, it was a horrible sight. Dana lay on her back on the floor atop of some bedding that had been removed from the bed. She was naked. Her nightgown had been ripped off her body. A blindfold, partially saturated in blood, was halfway off of her face. Her wrists were tied with white cord. Um, A bloody cord of the same variety was found around Dana's neck, and her left breast bore several stab wounds. So there was no question that Dana was both deceased and that it was a vicious attack. Did she live alone? I'm sorry if you said that. No, she had a a roommate, but her roommate wasn't there at the time. Her mother Shirley's 911 call came in at 3.04 p.m. Let's talk about Dana, who she was. Dana Bailey was from Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania. She was the youngest of four children born to Shirley and Samuel Bailey. Her sisters were Leslie and Tracy, and her brother was named Scott. Dana was especially close as well with her little niece, Nikki. People who knew Dana in high school said that she went out of her way to be nice to everyone. She was a twirler on the baton squad in high school and was known for being a little bit sentimental. I guess the kind of girl who cried at the homecoming parade. Her family was, you know, reportedly a good church-going family, and her parents worked very hard to set their children up for success in life. Dana was a middling student, a senior studying health planning and administration. After graduation in the spring of 1987, she hoped to land a job in the personnel department of a Washington, D.C. area hospital. And the reason why Washington, D.C. is because Dana was engaged to be married to a man by the name of Greg Greenberg, who was a hotel manager in the area in Washington. They met when they were both waiting tables at the corner room in State College. Their first date was playing tennis, and they really hit it off. Ever since Greg graduated, they had been doing the long-distance thing, seeing each other every weekend, basically. 
um, and their wedding was planned for September 26th. Dana was five foot four with blue eyes and wore her hair frosted and permed. This was the time for that, the 80s. She loved aerobics and running and was a soap opera devotee, particularly guiding light. Were you a soap opera person, Amy? No, nope, but I know your mom was. I was. Uh, oh, absolutely. You were too. I was all about Santa Barbara and General Hospital. Dana devoured romance novels and anything particularly by Danielle Steele. She was always reading. She loved flowers, red roses in particular. She loved animals, and her favorite band was Simon and Garfunkel. In college, Dana was described by classmates as quiet, but kind and always smiling. Dana was not a partier, preferring to hang with friends or her boyfriend. She was just really a sweet person who also wore ruffled socks to work and always had a positive attitude. The autopsy ruled that Dana had died from blood loss due to multiple stab wounds to her left breast and chest area. So the report said, Amy, there were about six to seven stab wounds. Quote, death was due to penetration of the hemothorax and hemopericardium due to multiple stab wounds off the chest. Her death was ruled a homicide by coroner W. Robert Neff. Whether she had been sexually assaulted has not really been made clear even to this day. And I will, there'll be more on that. So just keep that in mind. Chief investigator Thomas Jordan said that the murder was classified as a sexually motivated murder, though. But he wouldn't or couldn't answer the question at that time as to whether Dana had been sexually assaulted. Uh, Since that time, it's been reported two ways. Uh, First, that police do not believe that Dana was assaulted um, or that they could not tell whether she was assaulted. I'm assuming since they found her naked, that's why they assume that it was sexually motivated in some way. Yeah. And there was, remember, kind of mutilation to her chest area. Um, Yeah. And the the way her body was found, which we'll discuss more of. So let's get to the day of the murder. It was spring break for the students at Penn State that week. The campus was, you know, somewhat deserted with many students enjoying tropical getaways punctuated with beer drinking and, you know, casual hookups, the typical spring breaks, but not Dana. She was already focused on what lay in store for her after graduation. She was thinking about her wedding, her career. Um, So more important pursuits than, you know, wild parties and keg stands. She'd gone to Washington, D.C. to visit her fiancé, Greg, and had returned to State College in late afternoon on the 4th. She drove Greg's car back to campus. Upon her return, she decided that she didn't feel like going to her part-time waitress job at the corner room, where she'd worked for about six months with a perfect attendance record. But in fact, she told her roommate, who was a friend from home, that she was too tired to go to work. Was that out of the ordinary for her? It sounds like she's someone wouldn't call out of work. So is that a red flag? I don't know if it's a red flag. It might be. Because it was out of the ordinary. She had a she had a perfect attendance record before that. She called her mom, Shirley, and told her that she was just exhausted and had a headache because she had gotten a flat tire on the drive back to campus. Police later decided that this was a little white lie, since all the tire treads were evenly worn and no garage along the route reported coming to her aid. Um, That was per the Philadelphia Inquirer. So maybe it is a flag, right? At Dana's request, Shirley called and told the corner room supervisor that her daughter would not be there for her shift. 
But Dana wasn't too tired to attend an exercise class at her gym, the Lady Nautilus, at 323 East Beaver Avenue, just five blocks from her apartment. Most sources report that Dana attended this class. One source, the Inquirer, says that she went to a tanning salon. That was just one kind of one source that was a little bit different. So uh, it is believed that she went to this exercise class. After the class, around 6.30 p.m., she went back to her apartment. She didn't mention anything about anyone harassing her or bothering her during this time period, at least to her fiancé, who she spoke to on the phone from about 8 to 8.30 p.m. She told Greg that she was very tired and that she was going to bed early. Her roommate ended up going home for the night, so Dana was in the apartment alone. I know you had asked about that. And the other three apartments on the floor were unoccupied that night. Remember, everyone was on spring break at this time. Um, Just a quick note, too. The apartment was described as a one-bedroom, so it's not clear whether Dana and her roommate shared a room or if, you know, her roommate was um, staying in the living room, just for a point. Sometimes, I also feel like in college, sometimes it's a one-bedroom, but there's, like, one of those fake walls that's put up as, like, a partition. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and you know, they're off campus, so they're paying rent, so they're, they're making it work. Um, I'm pretty sure I did that just so you know in my 30s when I was getting my PhD. I shared... No, me too, because we lived, we lived in New yeah, York. Yeah, okay. So. <laughs> Sometime that night, Dana's killer entered her apartment. The coroner established that her time of death was late in the night of March 4th and early morning March 5th. Was there a forced entry? You know what? I'm going to describe the crime scene. So, yes, you'll see that there was. Um, So Dana was at her apartment alone on the night that she was killed, as I just said. There were clues that police were able to gather at the scene, but they haven't released all of those details. It was one of those hush-hush kind of things. The police have never expounded on this statement, but they did say that Dana apparently struggled with her attacker before succumbing. Signs of commotion were evident in the living room. Investigator Tom Jordan told the Center Daily Times. Based on the blood evidence in Dana's bedroom, police came to believe that Dana was killed in her bed and then moved to the floor. She'd been posed in a sexually suggestive position. Her legs were spread unnaturally wide apart and her knees were bent. Because the question is why? I mean, the police theorized there was a reason. The detectives observed the way her body was displayed and noticed that her body was perfectly aligned with the window in her room, uh, meaning this was where someone outside could see her body. I mean, it was kind of crazy, right? Who had access to her apartment but wanted to view her from afar? That was what they were theorizing here. The answer was whoever also had access to the empty apartment building a few doors down from her window. Dana's apartment building was in a row of contiguous shops and uh, retail stores along South Allen Street in State College. Her bedroom window looked out the side of the building over several shorter buildings adjacent to her building. But across those two or three smaller buildings stood a taller building with a direct view into Dana's window. Her bedroom window looked out the side of the building over several shorter buildings just adjacent to um, her apartment. But across those two or three smaller buildings stood a much taller one with a direct view into Dana's window. So this was maybe someone who was stalking her. I think that's what it sounds like. Um, The building that was situated across this, you know, from the adjacent ones uh, had an address of 124 Half South Allen Street. And this building was undergoing renovations. 
On the ground floor of this building was Graham's newsstand, but above that, some apartments had sat empty for quite some time. And one of those empty apartments, again, had a clear line of sight into Dana's bedroom and her naked body. So this was the theory by police, why she was posed in that way. As you had mentioned, Amy, police suspected that the killer may have stalked Dana before the crime, watching her from the building across the way, and again posed her so that he could stare at his handiwork from afar. This hunch proved correct when shoe prints found in Dana's apartment matched shoe prints in the empty apartment across the way. Um, Do you know if she had window treatments? Like, I'm wondering if, like, she never closed her windows and this person had been able to see her clearly. Don't know about the window treatments, but there will be some description of the window in just a little bit. Because the police were trying to figure out how Dana's killer got into her apartment. You know, she was on the second floor above the Crabtree Jewelers on the first floor. Her kitchen window also looked out, you know, the rooftops of those lower buildings. That kitchen window was found unlocked. So police guessed that whoever killed Dana had been on the roof and had climbed onto an upside-down five-gallon paint bucket, cut the screen with something sharp, raised the window, hoisted himself through. And that's how he gained entrance, and then proceeded to go and stab Dana in her bed. This is interesting. The knife used to kill Dana was her own. It was a steak knife lifted right out of the apartment kitchen. It was found in the bathroom. If any prints were found on it, the police haven't disclosed that. It's very rare for a perpetrator to not bring their own weapon. We've heard of cases like this before, but it definitely brings into question premeditation. But it's bizarre because it, it seems like this was a person who premeditated. You would have thought they thought about this. I mean, yeah, but maybe the, the plan wasn't murder. I think the plan was murder. Perhaps he only brought like a box cutter to cut that window, but he wanted a longer blade um, to strike, you know, lethal blows. As we know, stabbing has psychological associations with penetration. So perhaps her killer was impotent in the moment and his rage, you know, stabbed Dana instead. You know, maybe he had a different plan and things just went awry. Of course, this is all speculation, but there it was slightly odd. They felt that he took a, a knife from, you know, her apartment and didn't bring his own. So at this point, the question becomes, who would do this and why? The police were stumped. Dana's autopsy concluded that she had likely not been sexually assaulted, although the posing of the body indicated a sexual nature to the crime. There was no evidence of robbery. Her engagement ring worth some money was still on her finger. This was really perplexing. Several reports about the murder that we saw said Dana was found tied to a chair. This does not seem to be accurate as she was found on the floor by her mom. But it's possible that she was tied to a chair uh, using the bindings found on her wrist and neck. And then she was moved to the floor and posed after she was stabbed on the bed. Perhaps police found a chair with evidence of bindings or blood on it as well. Two years after the crime, the Philadelphia Inquirer reported that fingerprints have never been identified, but they were collected at the scene. And presumably the investigators found Dana's nightgown, which they said was torn from her body somewhere in the apartment as well. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. So, let's talk about the investigation a little bit more. Dana's murder was the first in State College in six years and the first killing of a student in 18 years. Newspaper headlines blared things like, Fatal Stabbing Shocks Tranquil State College. The region, called Happy Valley, was not used to such violent crimes, and the murder dominated headlines and water cooler conversations for weeks. The investigation was led by Center County Coroner Robert Neff 
and Center County District Attorney Ray Grecar, working in conjunction with the state police. As I mentioned before, state State College Police Detective Tom Jordan headed up the investigation. Six state college criminal investigators were staffed on the case, and they planned to interview everyone that Dana knew, everyone that she worked with, went to school with, and so on. I'm assuming her. I'm assuming her fiance had an alibi. He was ruled that out. That is correct. Early on, yes, he was. He was determined to be in Washington. But at this point, it was it seemed like you know they presumed that Dana's killer was someone that she knew and someone who might have a reason to kill her. But the police. You know, they held back a lot of information. For example, on March 9th, Center County District Attorney Ray Grecar announced publicly that Dana's apartment had been broken into. He said forcibly entered, but he refused to disclose any other details. State Police Lieutenant Jack Ordoff wouldn't even say if anything was missing from the apartment. They basically were just saying no comment to all questions. But it was completely normal for the residents, of course, of this, you know, supposedly safe college town to have questions and concerns. I mean, the students at Penn State, particularly female ones, were anxious. They felt like the police were too tight-lipped about the investigation and too reticent to release information to the public. You know, I think their theory here was that if there was someone marauding, you know, a stalker, a murderer, a madman, more information issued to the public would better help them to protect themselves. But at the same time, in investigations like this, they're also keeping information close to the chest because they don't want to blow up the whole investigation. So you could see it from both sides. Police kept the Bailey family regularly updated, but did not give them any information other than what was publicly released and also requested that they not speak to the media about the crime. Grecar asked that anyone who had been in contact with Dana recently to contact the authorities and also requested that any state college residents who had been the victims of recent break-ins to please contact authorities. This was, they fumbled though a bit here, Amy. On March 9th, police released a photo of Dana Bailey to the media. Only problem, it wasn't Dana Bailey. They had the wrong woman. How does that happen? So the fo- How yeah. disres- That's so disrespectful to the family. I agree. The photo was taken by the police from Dana's apartment, and they just assumed it was her, but it wasn't. It was her roommate. And this oh. photo ran in a number of papers. How traumatizing for the roommate and her family as well. Absolutely. Uh, a relative of this, you know, very much alive young woman in the photo contacted the paper and state college police and notified them that they had the wrong photo. So the next day, they had to issue an apology and a correct photo of Dana. Um, District Attorney Ray Grecar said, quote, inadvertently, the wrong picture was distributed, but that doesn't mean the investigation is being bungled. Okay. Didn't really inspire confidence. Um, the woman mm-hmm. in the photo asked that her name not be released to the public. And yeah, that's very traumatizing for her. On the 11th of March, both the Daily Collegian and the Center Daily Times published editorials criticizing the authorities' refusal to release information. The University Student Executive Council commenced work on a letter to D.A. Grecar expressing the concerns with how information in the Bailey case was being disseminated, or rather not being disseminated. Students were understandably concerned. Stan Lada, Associate Director of the University's Residence Hall Programs, told the Philadelphia Inquirer, quote, We're constantly out there trying to remind students about proper safety, locking doors at night. But the reality is that Dana's killer had somehow found his way into her window, even though she didn't live on a ground floor. He had literally, they thought, scaled rooftops to get to her. So it didn't matter that her door was locked. You know what I mean? 
The school also did not handle the whole incident particularly well, pointing out that Dana lived in an off-campus apartment and saying that students on campus were safe. Of course, you know, kind of the CYA. On April 3rd, State College Police announced a $15,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Dana's killer. The money reward was put up by an anonymous donor. Detectives looked at Dana's friends, family, and fiancé again and ruled them all out as being involved in the murder. Um, Her fiancé, you had asked about him earlier, admitted that they had an argument on the last day that Dana was with him. But it was kind of a minor argument. You know, she thought he wasn't paying enough attention to her. Uh, But again, he was in Washington, D.C. at the time of the murder, and he was clearly devastated by her death. But there was a suspect. So police investigated thoroughly into the life of a young man who took his own life in State College in July 1987. The investigators considered him a strong suspect because he died by suicide just three months after Dana's murder, and a note was found in his pocket that mentioned her name three times. What did the note say? Okay, he said that he missed Dana and was depressed. The letter described partly uh, that he was very upset about what this world is coming to. Now, Dana knew him. He was a co-worker at Corner Room, that restaurant. He wasn't a friend. He was an acquaintance. But investigators felt that he matched two-thirds of the FBI profile, which I'm going to address momentarily. He lived and worked in the immediate area. He was familiar with the area. He lived alone. He knew Dana, and he may have worked a late shift. However, he didn't match the DNA. And police could find no evidence of his involvement. Did he have an alibi or were they able to find out where he was at the time? But I think they were able to verify that he was busy at that time or, you know, he had some alibi. But even more importantly, there was offender DNA. Police have never stated what form this DNA took or what its source was suspected to be. A maintenance man who worked in the area was reportedly eliminated by DNA fingerprinting, what they used to call DNA analysis. The workers at the vacant apartment building were also vetted and cleared. But remember, I just described the FBI profile. So I want to address this because a behavioral profile of Dana's killer was prepared by the FBI in June of 1987. The state college authorities decided not to release it for two years. They finally released it in February of 1989. I wonder why the delay. I don't know. Maybe they didn't want, uh, you know, maybe they don't want to tip off any suspects, I think. Okay, here's what the profile said. It said the killer was likely a single, unkempt, white male between the ages of 20 to 26. He almost certainly worked or lived in the area of State College. He was of average intelligence and a high school graduate. He used mild drugs or alcohol and worked a menial job, and he may have worked the late shift. He was a daydreamer who had become acquainted with Dana and developed a sexual fixation on her. He likely had a history of inappropriate contact with college women and probably brought sex up in conversation quite often. He likely engaged in hardcore pornography. He was agile and liked detective magazines. So this one is odd, but he may have hung around laundromats. I guess you could speculate that maybe laundromats are a place where college students would, you know, be doing their laundry and he could kind of hang out there all day waiting, watching people. Yeah. People may not, you know, if you're someone who's hanging around a laundromat, that's normal because people tend to just hang around. So it might not stick out. Who knows? That's very strange. Yes. Finally, he may have been into fetish thefts. 
implying that something was taken from Dana's apartment, I think, is the implication mm-hmm. here. Um, it's a very specific profile. They're not always right. I mean, the, just just to point out, though, it's very specific, but it doesn't mean it's totally accurate. No, either. of course not. It's just, I, you know, profiles uh, sometimes are a little bit more general. This one was very uh, much more specific, I thought. You know, and you're right. It might not have been accurate, but it was interesting. They concluded that Dana's killer watched her from the abandoned building opposite hers. He would have learned her patterns and been able to see that she was home alone. After the crime, he watched Dana from the vacant apartment window for a time and the next day returned to the scene. This is what they are theorizing again, why he posed her because he wanted to watch. But they believe he returned to the scene of the crime the next day. I'm not sure if they meant specifically the scene of the crime or just watching the scene. Gotcha. Okay. They said that he may have discussed the crime or exhibited undue interest in it and probably saved newspaper clippings and photos. This is not, um, you know, atypical, especially of like serial offenders. He might have been angered by the wrong photo published in the papers. Remember the roommate? And he may have increased his use of alcohol or drugs after the murder. The police released some information, too. In December, the University Student Executive Council sent their letter to state college police and a district attorney, Ray Greekar, criticizing the failure of their departments to release information on the Bailey homicide. And in the wake of their receipt of this letter, the police department issued a press statement. But it really just reiterated information that already had been released. It stated that the investigation was a top priority. Police had interviewed upwards of 500 people and expended more than 200 man days investigating the case. They checked into parallel crimes across the country. They sent physical evidence from the crime scene to the FBI for testing. Um, If anything came, by the way, from the FBI testing, it hasn't been released. They looked into several suspects and so on. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. In January 1988, 10 months after Dana's murder, the Inquirer reported that the Baileys told them Tom Jordan recently visited them and told them, quote, I have a file with the names of 800 people the police had interviewed to date. None had panned out. The Baileys admitted that they were losing hope. Um, District Attorney Ray Grecar continued to stick to his guns in his refusal to release information, declaring that doing so would be counterproductive to the investigation. Tom Jordan said that the purpose of holding back information was so that they could properly be able to vet any suspect who came forward. He told the Inquirer, quote, besides, do people really need to know the gruesome details? Do they need to know how many times she was stabbed? Do they need to know whether he stole her TV? Hold on. Did he steal the TV or he's just using that as an example? I think it was an example, although they did remember imply that there was a theft. Yeah, but it sounds like more of a theft for like a trophy. Like I would would think think he he took maybe an article of clothing. I don't think he stole the TV. The Baileys feared that the reason police were withholding information was that they didn't want to reveal how little they knew. Investigator Jordan said, quote, we followed leads saying it could have been motivated by revenge, by randomly being in the wrong place at the wrong time or part of a serial murder. We are conscious of the fact that it could have been any of these. In other words, they didn't really know. And Jordan admitted that they only had guesses to the killer's motive, not to mention his identity. By the first anniversary of Dana's murder, the case remained unsolved and the investigation was foundering. Lead investigator Tom Jordan was frustrated with the lack of progress. He told the Center Daily Times that one of the biggest problems the investigation encountered was that Dana was killed 
during spring break and there was virtually no witnesses around. He said, um, quote, that's been detrimental from day one, a lack of people who could have seen or heard something. We canvassed that block. We found virtually no one living in their apartment. At the time, her building was vacant. There was no one there except her. I would imagine that her killer knew exactly that information, and that's why they, uh, that's why she was murdered when she was murdered, because there was no one around. I, could, I absolutely agree. Okay, just before the second anniversary of Dana's murder, the police finally decided to release some information. This is when they released their theory that Dana's attacker had watched her from the abandoned apartment across the rooftops. They said they believed he was there for hours. They had not wanted to release this information originally because they hoped that they would be able to catch the suspect returning to the vacant building, unaware that the police knew he had used it as a vantage point. And that makes sense to me. In this information release, authorities also said the knife came from the apartment, which hadn't been released previously. They revealed that they could not determine whether Dana had been sexually assaulted. It was at this time that they also issued that FBI profile of the suspected killer. And they also revealed that they had at least five serious suspects, four of whom had not cooperated with the investigation. They had spoken to a thousand people and traveled to four other states, as well as followed up on similar crimes in 10 other states. This publicity push garnered phone calls from citizens with at least a dozen calls containing tips. Then in March of 1989, right around the second anniversary, Dana's father received an anonymous letter signed Concerned Officers. The letter accused a police officer named Rusnik of being responsible for Dana's murder. The officer cooperated with detectives and an investigation by the attorney general's office found absolutely no evidence to support the allegations. We don't know any more about that letter, who sent it, or why. A 1989 article in the Inquirer stated that genetic testing on evidence found in the apartment eliminated about eight suspects. Tom Jordan said that at that time, just two or three others remained. Then there was a tip in 1991, an anonymous, so this is almost four years later, an anonymous caller called in a tip to the state college police in 1991. Tom Jordan, lead investigator, told the collegian that the tipster had not called the police directly because he was actually wanted by the police. Instead, he called a guest who had appeared on a television show on WJAC in Johnstown titled Getting Away with Murder. The show aired in February, and an unnamed person on the show was interviewed about Dana's murder. Several appeals were made to the public to come forward with any information. Immediately after the show aired, the tipster called that interviewee and told him or her that he would like to relay this information. The guest then phoned the police with the tipster's information. The tipster provided information about a suspect who worked for a heating contractor at the time of the killing and was familiar with the rooftops near Dana's apartment. According to the tipster, he had worked on the heating units on those very rooftops where the killer was believed to have been on the night of the murder. The tipster was able to describe the specific suspect he was talking about. He was a 5 foot 10 inch white male with, with curly, dark hair. He drove a gold or bronze Pontiac Trans Am with stripes. Tom Jordan told the collegian that police were taking the lead very seriously because of the similarities between the tip and the FBI profile. And the fact that the tipster said the suspect had access to the rooftops bolstered the likelihood that the tip was correct because police had already theorized about Dana being stalked from that, you know, vacant apartment. 
The police had theorized that he had watched Dana for one to five hours. It's unclear how they knew this. You know, perhaps cigarette butts or, I don't know, gum wrappers or, you know, something at the scene indicated how long someone had been there for. And then the police theorized that the murderer went down a flight of stairs, crossed the three-foot gap between the buildings, climbed over two peaks to Dana's window, and boosted himself off a barrel into the apartment. That is quite an endeavor. So it also has to be someone who is very physically able to pull that off. Absolutely. And as a result of this tip, police started contacting all heating contractors in the surrounding counties and asking them to retrieve work orders to help identify potential suspects. Police also pleaded with the tipster to please contact them with more information about the suspect. As far as we know, that did not happen. And this seemingly very good lead just kind of fizzled out. Five years after Dana's murder, Tom Jordan said he still thought about the case every day. It was a mystery that neither he nor anyone else could make heads or tails of. If Dana had a stalker, she either didn't know about him or she mentioned it to no one. Then in December 2003, 16 years after the murder, State College Police received an anonymous letter addressed to the chief. There were two persons named in the letter as being connected to Dana's murder. Police tracked down and interviewed both of these people, but could not establish any kind of connection with Dana. And neither person admitted to even knowing her. Police said neither of them was considered a viable suspect. The letter was postmarked from southeastern Pennsylvania. Police tracked down the return address, which turned out to lead to a post office box whose owner had no knowledge of the letter or Dana's murder. So the police believed it may have been a prank. But the letter did have an upside. It renewed interest in the case and prompted a $30,000 reward offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Dana's killer. It also prompted a review of the entire case by the new investigator, Ralph Ralston. He reorganized the case files, re-interviewed people, and sent physical evidence in for new testing. Tom Jordan had left the department at that point and went on to become a district judge. Jordan said later that he subscribed to the stalker theory and said that Dana must not have known about the man watching her. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. In an article commemorating the 20th anniversary of Dana's murder in 2007, police detective Ralph Ralston said no suspects have ever been identified. This was, of course, in contradiction to the statements made in 1989, in which the police, remember, they said they had five serious suspects. I thought it was eight. Wasn't it eight at one point? Yeah. So there was very conflicting information. And let's let's talk a little bit about this DNA evidence that was found at the scene. The police continued to say that there was no sexual assault. Police stated that the killer was a male. It's not too big of a leap to presume that male ejaculate was found at the scene or that blood found at the scene was tested and proved to be male. Or possibly cigarette butts again, or, you know, something else at the scene was tested. We just don't know. It could also just be the profile that they're assuming it's male, just based on the crime. Well, no. Remember, they used DNA to clear certain suspects. So there was DNA. Oh. Yeah. In 2014, uh, investigator Detective Ralston said that he had resubmitted samples to to be tested for STRs, YSTRs, mitochondrial, and even touch DNA. So they had DNA. We think it's safe to say they have a profile of the killer and he's not in CODIS is basically what I would say. But 
let's hope there's ample, you know, enough DNA to create a profile and conduct forensic genealogy to solve this case once and for all. In 2019, some Penn State film students produced, filmed, and released a short documentary about Dana's case. It's called Murder in Happy Valley. And Amy, our producer, Mike Morford, was interviewed for that documentary. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you can watch it on YouTube, and others can if they're interested. Did Mike do work on the case or just his expertise? I think it was his, just his expert opinion on it. And it brought a lot of attention to Dana's case, but unfortunately, it didn't help solve it. State Police Lieutenant Keith Robb and Stephen Bozak are now responsible for the investigation, which has stalled. The Bailey family still has no answers 37 years later. If anyone has information that could help, um, they would ask that you please contact the State College Police at the following phone number, 814 Two three four seven one five zero. Amy, one final note regarding Dana's case, a very odd twist. Remember this district attorney that was handling her case for nearly two decades, Ray Grecar? He would become part of a truly baffling mystery when he vanished in Pennsylvania nearly 20 years ago. Oh, that case was never solved? No, listen to this. On April 15, 2005, at 11.30 a.m., Grieker called his live-in girlfriend, Patty Fornicola, who worked with him at the district attorney's office. He told her that he was going to go for a drive in Brush Valley. Um, I think there were some antique stores and stuff along that way. When he failed to come home that night, Patty reported him missing, and a search ensued. His Mini Cooper was quickly found the next day, abandoned in a parking lot of an antique mall called The Street of Shops in Lewisburg. No one knew of any reason Grecar would be there, and there was no sign of him. The car was parked near the Susquehanna River, and his cell phone was there, but his laptop, keys, and wallet were all missing. However, there was no signs of struggle or foul play at this time. Is it possible that he died by suicide? It is. There's a lot of possibilities here. They said that the car did smell like smoke, even though he didn't reportedly smoke. His family was concerned because Grecar's older brother, Roy, had died by suicide in 1996 in a similar venue. Searches for Ray along the riverbanks turned up nothing. Scent dogs appeared to lose the trail in the parking lot, indicating he could have gotten into another car. His bank accounts and credit cards remained untouched. On July 30th, fishermen snagged something in that river, Susquehanna River, beneath a bridge, and it turned out to be Grecar's work laptop. The hard drive was missing. A hard drive recovered oh. two months later on the banks of the river, about 100 yards away from where the laptop was found, was badly damaged and has not been able to be interpreted. That's interesting. Yes. Um, this from a Wikipedia quoting a Broken Link article in the Center Daily Times Quote, in April 2009, Belafonte police revealed that before Grecar's disappearance, someone had used the home computer at the residence he shared with Patty to perform Internet searches on topics such as how to wreck a hard drive and water damage to a notebook computer. This is baffling. So as you Mm -hmm. asked, the theories about his disappearance range from anything from foul play, to he died by suicide, to he disappeared himself and is still alive. He's never been found. And I remember this case. I've seen this on um, another show. No one believes that there's a connection between 
him and Dana other than the fact that it's just a coincidence. Yeah, no, there's not. it's not suspected that there's a connection. It was just a bizarre twist for someone who was also mm-hmm. so involved in her case for so long. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that it's safe to say, I mean, we know that Greekar's disappearance could be solved, but at this point, I don't know that it, it will be. Um, I know that he, his daughter had petitioned as well to have him declared deceased. So he has been declared deceased in a court of law. And without more evidence or, you know, a witness or someone to come forward, I'm not sure that his disappearance will be solved. However, um, in conclusion here, I would like to say that I'm a little bit more optimistic about Dana's case. We have seen cases where DNA has been kept and preserved and tested 30, 40, 50 years later and has identified the perpetrator. So in this case, um, I really am hopeful and I I remain optimistic that Dana's case can and will be solved. And again, we released the tip line. So if I just want to repeat that one more time, if anyone has information, please contact the State College Pennsylvania Police at 814-234-7150. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. We hope you'll join us next time on Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg with research and writing by Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook by searching for Campus Killings Podcast. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.